Yeah. So when we're talking about a riot, right, and we're talking about uh, a revolt and an uprising, right? So what is a riot? What is a revolt? What is a revolution? What is a little uprising or a petty riot or a petty revolution? All those things are uh, we are language people, right? Okay, and we're talking about history, right? Now, how do you describe it? And what is the nature? What do you call as a riot? Right? And what do I call as a riot? What do I call as a revolution? Okay, all those things are important, right? And you might like to look at this. This is by uh, the son of a man called Che Guevara, right? Who is a Latin American uh, uh, kind of youth icon because he's killed very young and he's a revolutionary, right? So you might like to look at it and you you have his son Ortez Perez, Perez, right? Ortez Perez being interviewed, right? By the BBC, right? You'll get it on YouTube, definitely, right? And uh, they asked Ortez Perez, right? How do you feel about being the son of Che Guevara, right? And he said, well, the revolution is over almost 50 years ago, right? What are these people talking about? Right? Can you really talk about it anymore? And you're talking about the Cuban Revolution, right? And you talk about Che Guevara, who is a, uh, who is a commandante, and all those kind of things, right? He was given this high position, and there's a song also uh, praising Che Guevara, and he become a youth icon, and people have him on their T-shirts and all that kind of thing, right? It's it's very fashionable to have uh, Che Guevara on your T-shirt, right? Yeah. And uh, even, even though it's more than 50 years, right? So the son says, well, what do I do, right? He didn't know that he was the son of Che Guevara, uh, though his mother was married to Che for a short period of time, right? And his mother never told him that he was the son of Che, right? Yeah, and he was, uh, yeah, maybe they were divorced or whatever. He's an artist and a writer and all this kind of things. And he says, the revolution is over, right? And people still go on in Cuba, which they say one year after the revolution, two years after the revolution. The revolution is over long ago, right? Yeah. So revolutions can't last forever, right? But the effect of a revolution is uh, long-standing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people often compare Che Guevara with Bob Marley. Yeah. Bob Marley. Uh, is also very politically conscious, right? And Bob Marley, uh, there, there are, uh, I, I think Bob Marley was also killed, right? But Bob Marley has very, very interesting kinds of songs, right? Yeah? Uh, yeah. No, it's not hilarious because they're different people, right? Yeah, you might like to compare him, right? But Bob Marley also is very politically conscious, right? And he's talking about cultural consciousness, right? Yeah. And uh, no, it's it's important that when we're talking about Che and when we're talking about Bob Marley, we're also talking about the idea of cultural consciousness, right? Which is today, if you study Latin American literature, uh, when we're talking about uh, Che Guevara, we'll talk about how culture has been changed in Latin America by what you call neoliberalism. Right? So the latest book which I have got over here and which I'm teaching my students, right? Uh, it actually means, uh, they're actually talking about how different people are trying to fight this idea of neo-colonialism, which our Indian government 
has adopted from the time of Manmohan Singh and uh, Chitambaram, right? Yeah. So they're actually talking about what the present scenario is and how they're fighting. They're not even talking about Che. Okay. They're talking about the Zapatistas. They're talking about all these other kinds of little movements which happen, right? Yeah. And of course, uh, do we have all these kinds of things happening in England at this point of time? In Chaucer's time, we have something called rebellions, right? Yeah. The only time which things actually change with is much later when you have the rule of Oliver Cromwell and uh, the whole takeover, okay? That's a revolutionary kind of step, right? Uh, which is taken when they behead Charles I, right? Yeah, so, so that's kind of the first monarch much before the French Revolution, right? Which is put to death, right? Of course, uh, even earlier than that, before uh, uh, Charles the, the first, right? Uh, you actually have uh, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, right? Who's put to death by Queen Elizabeth, right? So Stefan Zweig writes about it in his book called Mary, Queen of Scots and says, well, if they hadn't executed Mary, Queen of Scots, we wouldn't have all these other monarchs being ex executed, right? But I don't know whether that's true and we have to think about it again because that's a, a, a very, very interesting kind of point that we're talking about, right? So the question is, what gives people sanction to kill a king, right? And in the revolution, all that kind of thing is what, there's some kind of a force, which is a revolutionary force, which changes all these things, right? Now, all my friends, like the, my friend, uh, Perdez, who uh, 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 died, right, because of TB, right, that's what I was told, uh, he actually says, well, you can't call technology revolutionary, right? Revolutionary for him is a social movement, right? Technology doesn't matter, according to him, but for me it is, right, yeah? Because when we talk about technology, technology changes people, right? Yeah, whether you talk about wearing shoes or not wearing shoes, that's technology. You talk about a chair and a table, that's technology, right? And that changes us, right? In India, we were not used to sitting at chairs and tables, right? We used to be sitting on the ground. Have we changed physically? Have we changed psychologically, right? What is the whole idea of sitting on a chair and sitting on the table, right? And the whole idea of uh, when we have a meeting, okay, uh, with the caste system and all those kind of things, uh, there is a huge problem about sitting in chairs, uh, on chairs and sitting on tables and uh, you, you, if you have to treat everybody in a democracy equally, you have to give them a place to sit at the same kind of chairs and the same kind of tables. You have to give them the same plates to eat and the same glasses to drink in and all that kind of thing. You, mark, you can't mark glasses differently, you can't mark plates differently, you can't mark places differently, right? Yeah, so uh, when we're talking about this idea of, and this is a revolution in India, right? We must go to the fact that this man called Jyotir uh, Phule, right? Actually, and his wife, and this woman called Fatima Sheikh, right? So, Savitri Bhai Phule, Fatima Sheikh, Jyotir Phule, they actually are confronting and creating a revolution, right? And of course, it's a political revolution, though it's uh, and a social revolution because 
they actually get chappals and shoes and stones at them when they are educating girls and taking them to school and that happens in the 19th century in India, right? Much later than here, right? So it's not armed, right? And the question for us today is, is educating a person more important than all the arms and arms and artillery that we have, right? Yeah, and this is what we still see today and what is with the national education policy of India, right? Where the people who are upper class, upper caste are trying to see that people who are marginalized are pushed down, right? And that's again a problem that we have with a digital world and a digital media and online classes. These are different ways of reinforcing something called caste, right? So the question is, do we have a rebellion or do we have a revolution, right? So we have to think about these two words, revolution and rebellion. And when you have technological change, right, that is also a revolution, right? We must remember that when the first sewing machine happens, right, in the 19th century, it's just about maybe a hundred and odd years ago, right? Yeah, uh, the, the cycle has, comes in in uh, about 1865, right, or somewhere there, right? So what happens over there in a hundred and odd years, right? Everybody used to uh, uh, learn how to ride a cycle. They learn how to ride scooters and motorcycles. They learn the car, right? Now these are all quick kind of technological transfers which take place, right? But we are not talking only about them, right? We are talking about how does the culture change with them, right? Uh, one view uh, of the modern sociology is when you have uh, certain cultures will have a lot of changes in technology, right? So this is the Western culture which has created the bicycle, right? Yeah, and that's a change in technology. When the horse came up and you had to shoe a horse, that's a change in technology and that's happening at Chaucer's age. You'll find that in Shakespeare's age also, right? Because people have to be uh, around on horseback, right? And the idea of shoeing a horse, uh, so that's when technology comes in. You have the Iron Age and you have the shoeing of a horse, right? Before that, I don't really know what the advantage is, right? Because when the horses shoot, that is the horse's digits can't move, right? And maybe it's easier for the horse and it's easier for the, the people concerned. Yeah, maybe somebody can uh, look into it and see how this kind of thing changes, right? Yeah, because that actually becomes a problem. Uh, when your horseshoe comes off, right? You have to go and get a new horseshoe. It's either a braided because of uh, too much of use, right? It's slowly, uh, it wears out. That's called a braided, right? And so one, uh, so that's uh, when you have to change the shoe or the shoe just comes off, right? Uh, one of the nails it gets worn out or whatever it is and it comes off, right? So you have to go and put it. Right? So we're talking about a new age, which is called the Iron Age, and that's been around for a long time. Right? So shoeing a horse, having the metal rim around the wheel, right? Because the wheel is a great technological movement. Right? Yeah, so we are actually doing that and we are actually talking in this way because when we're talking about social histories, we have to actually talk about technologies. Right? And the technology, these are very big revolutions 
in technology, right? Which actually changed the lives of people dramatically, right? We only have to go much rec more recently. Look at what has happened with the mobile phone revolution, right? Which happened with Manmohan Singh. And the question is, people raised issues and said, people don't have toilets, they don't have water, right? Yeah, they don't have food. Some people don't have food. But the idea of a mobile is something that's gone and selling all over, right? Yeah, and the whole idea of communication becomes so important, right? And it takes us to different kind of technological modernity, right? Modernity, uh, we are going to, and we are always have to think about this idea of modernity, right? So what kind of modernity do we have, right? We're talking about technological modernity, right? It's like I got a job in King Faisal University in Saudi Arabia, but I didn't take it because I was told that I will have to teach people, if I'm teaching girl students, I'll have to teach them on uh, CCTV cameras, right? That's how I'm going to teach them, okay? And that time I said, no, this is too much for me. I can't do that, right? Because I need to meet people, right? Whether they're men or women, I have to meet them as equals, right? I have to meet them face to face. I can't do all this thing because this is terrible. And now what am I doing, right? I'm actually doing the same thing, right? I see a screen and I'm talking to a screen, right? So this is uh, how we look at revolutions, right? And how does technology change things is, I think, a very important idea that we have to think about, right? So one is we have the peasant revolts. Now, the question that I'm talking about all these things for is the question is how do technological revolutions, right, create uh, revolutions which are sociological and political, right? Now, you have a number of examples. Like, for instance, when you have writing, right? So that's a revolution, yeah? Remember that the man called Socrates says, no, I don't want to write things down, right? Yeah? Writing is still a new thing. It's not that he didn't know it or his students didn't know it, okay? But the idea is the mode of what you say, right? And he's talking about the idea of the dialogical method, right? Yeah? So the dialogical method will be spoiled. People will not they'll be in, able to interpret what I say outside, right? Because this is what we are, we are actually come to, right? We are talking about uh, a, the dialogical mode of education which has changed, right? Yeah, and the idea of a dialogue is slowly being uh, undermined by our global world, like I'm doing an audio, right? Of course, when we have this meeting, uh, we can actually interact with each other and that's exactly what Socrates wanted to do, right? So writing down, would remove the idea of meaning, right? So you can read more about that, especially about uh, incredulous and all his other essays, right? So that's technology, right? And then slowly technology is still the writing script, the paper, the papyrus, and technology changes till you get something called printing, right? And printing is a huge kind of revolution, right? In fact, many people say that the first kind of capitalist capitalism comes in with print capitalism. Right? Yeah? And we're talking about an age just before the print uh, has come in. That is this age we're talking about in Chaucer's age. Right? So what is happening over here is you still have written manuscripts. You still have 
even after printing comes in it takes a long long time to actually get everybody to read right yeah and you might like uh, this idea because when we're talking about reading the idea of silent reading is something that was not around right the first person who's supposed to be noted as a silent reader is a man called alexander the great right so that's for general knowledge if you like right because we're talking also about the history of reading right and till saint ambrose and saint uh, augustine right these are people who they everybody used to read loudly right so when you read a letter you read it out loud right so the so the technology of writing the technology of communication is something else right it's like what we have today right when you want to talk to somebody publicly right and get proof you put your mobile on uh loud right or what whatever the mode is called right conference mode or whatever you call it right so you can do all these things if you want other people to join if you want proof you can record the meeting all those kind of things in there right yeah so when you have uh, the technology changing we are talking about different kinds of ways of communicating and different kinds of discourse right and why is this so important right we are talking about the idea of translation right here we are talking about wycliffe the lollards the idea of translation and the idea of a uprising right and we are talking about the church the state which was already uh, uh, there a little before this age right we are talking about henry the second and that's 11 something right yeah when henry the second uh, actually asked for a church versus state right the, so that's the history and he's supposed to be very important in the history of what is called governance and the history of secularism right so the idea of changing the state and the church uh, the religious matters should be separate and the uh, state matters are separate right of course there is administration in the uh, in the in the church and there is administration in the state but he's saying that these are different people and the question of power should be in different hands right because these are people are talking about god okay that's the church and that's religion and the state is talking about the temporal and the material right now that's a huge thing and it's shut down and it's for henry the second has to suffer a lot because uh, the whole of uh, the roman world or the roman uh, uh, the holy roman empire as it's called after the pope becomes the head of the roman empire right uh that is not in support with henry the second right that is actually with in support of religion right and in spite of that when we look at what is happening we talked about the peasants and the idea of the wars and the plague which comes in right and diminishes the population right and because of this kind of sociological change that happens uh you have this idea of an economic kind of position changing and the relationship between the feudal lord and the uh the the serfs change right now that is huge right okay and that's actually a revolution which takes place 
right? And that's a revolution which is not really in the terms of people coming together and saying, we want change, right? Yeah, or we want another government, we want change, right? So these are social revolutions which take place because of certain conditions and society changes because of that, right? When we're talking about a political revolution, right? And if I'd given the lecture after teaching you and talking about this this way, it would have been different because uh, we are talking about what happens and why a social revolution is different from an industrial revolution or a technological revolution, right? And uh, the question of circumstance, which actually changes a lot of things, right? Yeah. So uh, we have to keep that in mind because how does how does the revolution happen? How does revolutionary change happen, right? Yeah, and we will slowly come to the idea of the industrial age where you have printing, right? Which is the first kind of modern technology, right? And gives you something called print capitalism and all that hasn't changed, right? Because the richest men in the world were the print capitalists, right? This is a little after Joseph, right? Yeah, and still today, when you talk about Bill Gates, that's one of the richest people in the world. Right? And that's because of print capitalism, even today. Right? So that's something interesting about being modern and the modern age. Right? And maybe it looks like a digression, but we have to look at the idea of the industrial revolution at some point of time, right? which is different from a political revolution. Right? And we have to talk about the, the petty rebellions which go on right, in England and how they're dealt with. Right? So the question is, we're talking about how do people respond to governments? How do the management or the government actually suppress or uh, deal with a revolution or a, uh, with a rebellion? Right? England hasn't, besides the industrial revolution, England hasn't really suffered uh, uh, revolutions of the kind that we're talking about, except when you have Cromwell, right? And that's not even looked at as a revolution. Oh, it's, it's looked at more like a coup, right? But it's puritanism which comes in in a big way, right? And the effects of puritanism are splitting up of people, right, into Catholics. Uh, the Catholics and the Anglicans have already uh, changed, but you get another group of people who are called Puritans, and that's much later, of course, when we come to the, uh, uh, the 17th and the 18th century, right? Yeah, so that's again which comes out of technology, right? Because the technology uh, which allows you to print books, right? Which you couldn't do before, you had to write a book down. So you wrote the Bible down, right? Yeah, and now you can print it, right? So you can print a hundred copies of the book, right? And it's available to everybody, right? And the minute it's available, people can read the Bible, right? Now, when we're talking about this point of time, uh, we are still talking about people Okay, now the question, and the question is always going to be asked, right? Did the Industrial Revolution lead to something called the Reformation, right? So you'll have to think about that because that's an important thing to think about, right? Because we have uh, the Industrial Revolution where Bibles are produced, people can read the Bible, and when they're talking about people reading the Bible, it also means that we're talking about how do people change, right? The, the tool that you use to suppress people is language, right? Here you have Latin, 
which is meant only for the elite right and you, language is a tool like every other tool right yeah and that's not my idea you have it already in thomas carlyle right uh, so he's talking about uh, the the human being being a tool using animal and the human being being a language using animal right yeah so that's a tool that we have and the idea of suppression people is by this tool of language right so you can note and this is extremely important politically and socio politically right because we still have these issues in india right we have that in the manusmriti right where you say that certain people should not be able to read the text right that's what you have also in europe right you also, of course uh, not with the kind of uh, strictures that we have in manusmriti where you're talking about lead being poured into people's ears and all those kind of things right yeah and uh, the uh, lower caste people not being allowed to read the scriptures all those kind of things happen in india uh, happen with the manusmriti right and that's similar similar not same right because we are talking about different cultures right the similar similarity is how do you use use language to keep certain people out right and we look at india today and our national education policy which is uh, already pa uh, somewhat passed or the draft is passed or whatever that is right yeah we're looking at it and this is what we're doing still because we've done it for a long time in india right and we've done it for a long time in the world how do you keep people out of how do you use language to keep people out of things right yeah and when we look at it from a linguistic point of day language is culture right so if my culture makes you keep out right like for instance in some languages we have the up form and the do form right i think telugu has different ways of talking to different people right depending on caste and we have a caste dialect and we also have a class dialect in many parts of india right so when you talk to an upper caste person you use a certain language when you talk to a lower caste person you use a certain language yeah and we have the up form and do form which is in german and in french and many other languages also it's not only in india right yeah so one of the things is the politics of language right and the politics of language is not the politics that you play in the election of government right of course if you look at language with a capital l everything is language that's what the structuralist would say right but when we're talking about the politics of language the the question is we're talking about social kinds of interactions with people right the government might say what it wants right like the government might say three language formula right english hindi and uh yeah or english another uh, language and the regional language right that's how the three language formula used to work i don't know what the formula is because there there is something uh, very snooty about um, uh, not snooty really but very uh, insidious about the, the present nep right because uh, it says that you can speak in your mother tongue right now the mother tongue is a bad idea because most feminists won't want the word mother tongue used because all language is controlled by males right and all language is legitimized by males controlled by males all the structures of the even if you go to sentence structure and um, sound patterns they're full of male uh, the male imprint right so that's 
a very, very problematic issue, right? And uh, let's not go there, right? But the idea is, how do you use language to keep people out? And that's important, right? Because this was actually physically happening in Chaucer's England, right? If you are to get married, your prayers outside the church, a marriage outside the church in English, right? In France, they might have had it in France, right? Uh, yeah, what's happened? Uh, what happened? Hmm? Yeah, is there a problem? Yeah, looks like something gone wrong. Yeah, I don't know why it suddenly went off. Right, now is it okay? Right, yeah, are you back again? Right, fine, yeah. So when we're talking about uh, the idea of language, how do you keep people out of certain kinds of ways of operation, right? We're not talking about dialect and we're not talking about a variety of language. That's another level of keeping people out, right? If you don't speak English a certain way, if you don't speak Hindi a certain way, right, or Marathi a certain way, right, then uh, we are talking about linguistic uh, digressions and this idea of uh, the, the right form or the standard form or the Brahminical form of the language, which is in all our regional languages also, right? Yeah, so that's, again, when we're talking about regional languages, uh, we get into problems, right? So when we're talking about this, when we're talking about the social history of Britain, we're talking about uh, cutting through all these layers of different kinds of problems that we have, right? At one level, the, the idea of Latin, right? The idea of Latin is a linguistic problem which affects all the people because it's the language of the law, right? And it's also a language which all the religious ceremonies are conducted in. The priests know Latin, okay? The, the officials know Latin, right? That's otherwise they wouldn't be able to function, right? Then you also have a language called French, which is supposed to be a elite kind of language, right? So we can see that uh, these are divisions in society which are very subtle, yeah? And we are thinking about them, right? Because we are university people, right? And we are thinking, and we are art students, right? So we're thinking about them and we're saying, well, here you have a division in society, right? And the, the division is very subtle and people are living at that time, some of them may have been aware, others might have just accepted it, right? This is the way it is, right? So I want to go to church. Well, I don't know Latin. So what do I do? Uh, I can get it in English or French, whatever that is, right? In England it would be English, right? Or Norman French or this kind of Anglo-Saxon that is just taking place, right? In Chaucer's English, uh, you half Anglo-Saxon and half uh, Norman French or some varieties of that, right? Yeah. So this mixing of language is taking place. Uh, the standardization of language hasn't happened, right? So here the cultural and the social situation is very important, right? And here we also have this political situation, which is not a political situation like uh, the ruler has changed, the policies are changed, and therefore everything changes, right? There's a the social situation which arises from the ground, 
right? It actually is on the ground over here, right? It's a material change which is taking place. People die of the plague. People die in the wars. People, uh, some of the people who are farmers go to become soldiers. Some of the people stay there. The serfs move off. They run away. All those kind of things happen because of material changes, right? So we're talking about down to up, right? So normally when we talk about a revolution, we talk about up to down, right? When you change the head of a government, then you have a revolution, right? Yeah, or when you change basic technology, you have a revolution, right? So these are things that I think we have to understand, right? And when you have a rebellion, uh, that's all that they have in England, right? Uh, rebellions, uh, and you see a lot of rebellions, right? And the peasant rebellions are taken seriously by the king, right? So that's important, right? And it's maybe because it's a small little part, a small little place, which is not even quarter of the size of Gujarat, that's England. I'm not talking about British Britain, right? Yeah, if you take all of Britain, I don't, I don't even think it matches the size of Gujarat, right? Yeah, uh, neither people-wise or area-wise, right? But uh, you're taking a small little part of a place like England and maybe the king can go out and meet the people because we're talking about the medieval times, right, where all these kinds, even if we talk about India and we talk about security, whether it's India or it's the United States, right, all things have changed in the recent past, right, because we're talking about security and the idea of security change, right. Now, this is something that we've seen only now, right? Otherwise, uh, even if you go and look at your peeps diary and uh, other things, you'll have uh, the idea of the king mixing with people. The king going to a, a party and uh, having a dance, right? Yeah, all those kind of things are happening in England, right? And this idea of somebody killing the king over there doesn't really happen, right? Yeah, so we're talking about a different age, right? We're talking about a king who can ride out and meet the kind of uh, people who are uh, outside, right? Yeah, meet the peasants, okay? And that shows, of course it shows a lot of courage by the king, right? And that ties up with the idea that they get from uh, rhetoric and the Romans, right? Because uh, the idea is if you know your rhetoric properly and if you're schooled properly, right, then you know how to handle a mob, right? You know how to handle riotous people. So all these things are to do with the idea of the training of the king, right? Uh, in India, you might have, uh, what's this book called? Hitopadesha, right? Which is a kind of a manual for kings to be taught, right? How to govern, right? And we have the Leka Padati and all those kind of Sanskrit texts also, right? Yeah, so the idea, of course, in the Roman world is can the king actually uh, be a good citizen? That's an idea which comes from the Romans, right? And can the king actually treat the citizens as citizens, right? And the idea is how do you negotiate? That's important because you can't have, when you have a peasant uprising, normally the idea is to get out today. The idea is to get the soldiers out 
and kill the peasants off or kill the people who are uprising, right? We've seen that with George Floyd's death, right? Where the police are used over there, right? We've seen that with all the protests in India, right? Where you use force to put people back, right? But the, the thing that is happening over here, when you have a rebellion, right? And that's the important kind of shift, which is English in uh, some uh, sense, right? And becomes the character of the English people is the question is you go and meet the king goes and meet the people, right? You have a dialogue. You find what the problems are, right? Now that's changing governance, right? So when we're talking about the social history of Britain, we're talking today we're talking about governance with people like Foucault and all that, right? Yeah. The question is how do you govern, right? Do you just issue orders from the top down? Right? We're talking much before a democracy, right? We in India today don't have that kind of thing, right? The idea of the democracy is over, right? Because we don't even discuss an education policy in in parliament, right? And it's not given to the public to discuss, right? In England, even till today, you have a lot of issues which are still what you call uh uh what what is the right word for it? Uh well, I can't get the word. I get it. Um, it's called a. Uh, sorry, I just can't get the word. I'll get it back. Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a. Uh, the question is: Do you have a public debate, or are the people consulted? Right. Now that's something that is still there in England. Right. A plebiscite. Right. It's called a plebiscite. Right. Something that the in the contract with. Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir, right, was signed by the Indian government and something that they never did, right, and they should have done it, right, because if if they had done it, then they actually everybody would have voted for India and in the Article 370 wouldn't have uh, had all these dramatic consequences which are coming up today, right, yeah, so the idea of a plebiscite is something that the British still have. Right? And that's with school education, and that's in the 80s, in 83 or 84, somewhere there. Right? And of course, that's a very funny story and a terrible story also because they ask people about the idea of studying a grammar. Right? Yeah, I'm sorry to get you to this because this is interesting for me as part of what you call the text that I'm teaching and the idea of the social. Social linguistics, right? And you have an interesting book called Verbal Hygiene by a woman called Deborah Cameron, right? And the different essays in the book, okay? And one is called Dr. Syntax Meets Mrs. Grundy, right? And it's actually talking about this huge kind of plebiscite that they have in England talking about should grammar be taught or not taught, right? And of course, the sad thing about it is uh, everybody from school teachers are consulted, right? Uh, yeah, so all of them have to vote for it, right? And uh, the linguists are consulted, they have a debate and a discussion, right? And everybody says grammar should not be taught, right? And when it goes to the king and the queen, they say no grammar should be taught and that's it, right? So that's not democratic, not democratic at all, and not 
a good idea of governance because governance today implies that we actually ask the experts, right? So the linguists, uh, yeah, it's people like Leach and uh, the other one who's an M MP, uh, yeah, Leach and uh, what's his name? Uh, Quirk, Lord Randolph Quirk, all those kind of people were involved, right? And from a linguistic point of view, grammar should not be taught, especially when you're speaking your own L1, right? Yeah, so what India would call the mother tongue, right? How many people learn Gujarati grammar or Marathi grammar or Hindi grammar, right? I was brought up in Maharashtra and I remember uh, there was a teacher who used to teach in a Marathi school and he used to give me a private tuition in Hindi, right? Yeah, so one day he was talking to my mother and he says, well, uh, what they're learning in Marathi and learning in Hindi in the English medium school is something that we do not teach to the Marathi students, right? Yeah, and the logic is straight, okay? Because you already learn how grammar, you acquire the language, right? Without learning the rules of grammar, right? Does anybody speak their local language knowing the rules, right? Yeah, my mother was a Konkani speaker, right? She knew how to read and write Konkani in Kannada script, right? But if you ask her what is the grammar of Konkani, she'd say, I don't know, I'm not con. I have not studied Kokhani in that Kokhani in that way because there was no there was no kind of school to teach them, right? It's a minority language, right? And the hundreds of minority languages which nobody uh, uh, they, they don't have a grammar for. So what do you do about that? Right? Yeah. So what is interesting and what is important for us is uh, when we are looking at the idea of uh, the idea of language and language as a tool to distinguish between people. That's one idea which will get in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, right? As a social kind of phenomenon, which is accepted by the people and is not challenged in the way uh, that that will be challenged later, right? But of course, the challenge comes from educated people like John Wycliffe and uh, when he comes and talks about the translation and the Bible, right? I'm already going right into your syllabus Excuse me for that, but it's not delinked from this, right? Your whole syllabus will go and we'll talk about this idea of social revolts, right? And Wycliffe is a kind of prefiguring or, or predating this thing called the Reformation, which happens uh, later in uh, Europe, right? So you have people in Switzerland, like Zwingli and all those kind of people, they're talking about religious reforms, right? And they're all very, very educated people at a little later date, right? But what is interesting is that this man called Wycliffe is actually talking about translating the Bible into English, right? And is this idea of this linguistic divide between people who are elite and people who are common, right? Actually is something that changes. So the, the Bible is written in a in uh, Latin that is called the Vulgate or common Latin. It's not classical Latin, right? Yeah, it's, it's like talking about uh, the Sanskrit of uh, Saraswati Purana and the Puranas, right? And which is quite different from the classical Sanskrit, right? Yeah, I think that's a, com a comparison that we can make, right? But so uh, that's the Latin language. And in spite of that, Wycliffe is asking for the language of the vernacular, right? So the idea of the elite 
the uh, the privileged right that's social right the idea of the official right because latin is the official language the state language all the things are happening the law courts are happening in latin the great parliamentary debates are happening in latin if there are any parliamentary debates yes they are right yeah so all those things are happening and even if they happen in english you use a lot of latin terms and that's how you operate right and the poor the idea of the poor people the common people doesn't count right and the common people become important when they revolt right when you have a rebellion right and you have the farmers rebelling right and they take that seriously right in india we haven't taken the migrant worker seriously right yeah and we haven't bothered about it, right but this is we're talking about something like uh, 6 700 years ago in england right we are actually talking about all these changes that are taking place right yeah and we're talking about all the rebellions that take place and how does the government respond to the people right now why is it part of the social history right because the question is when you negotiate right in this manner there is what you call a kind of democracy which is already creeping in before actual democracy they have a parliament already right okay but the parliament doesn't have all these lumpen kind of elements so what you, the marxists would call lumpen right the uneducated farmers who have not studied at all right yeah uh, so and it's of course in latin yeah and it's church and state right so the churchmen and the nobles all study latin they also know french right and maybe they know many other languages right so the idea of linguistic ability is something that is very strong right and when you have the peasants uprising right then the king goes and talks to them on their own terms and how does this kind of a linguistic cultural social division actually get bridged how do they resolve a problem in spite of all these social divisions right so that's i think something interesting to think about because when we are talk we are talking even about a time so far away right social divisions are something that we can't miss right and how people are kept in their place or suppressed that's the word we use today right how people are kept in their place or the structure of society is kept in its place by linguistic uh, kind of authoritarianism right which we do especially in english departments and other ways right okay and of course uh, we all say that well this is not right this is not wrong okay so we are, we are keeping a lot of people out of certain systems right yeah and the question is how do we include everybody right so that's a question and when we look at what is going on over here right it's it's not a question of being honest right it's not a question of being honest it's a question of being uh managing things right yeah and to be seen as fair so these are very very important values uh, which are coming up right yeah we might talk about temperance we might talk about robin hood and we might talk about the values that the the legendary robin hood had we might also talk about the legend of king arthur which is supposed to be pre christian right yeah and is dressed up in this whole idea of the age changing the christian world coming in and it's talking in all those kind of blurry uh, details yeah right uh, what is interesting is uh, how does the linguistic and the social gap uh, get 
uh, dealt with, okay, and how do you deal with it, right? And the English, from this time you can see that they've been com constantly compromising, yeah, right? Uh, yeah, so they keep compromising and they keep negotiating, yeah, so negotiation, compromising, comp uh, yeah, and some kind of a, uh, an understanding between the ruler and the ruled is very important, yeah, and that's not a democracy even then, right? Yeah, it's a, in a monarchy, you have this idea of the idea of the, the king and the people, right? And the king and the people being uh, able to negotiate, right? Yeah, so that's what a democracy has to be, right? And they don't even have this idea of democracy as we have it after the French Revolution, after the American War of Independence, right? And after constitutions being written like the Constitution of India, etc., right? We're talking about everybody being equal, right? Uh, these things, are, as human beings, they're equal, though they have a lot of social differences, right? So the contradictions over there, it's not absolutely clear, right? And the idea of negotiation and the idea of politics is something that you can see, right? How does the king retain his position, right? How does he keep the, uh, the people in their place, right? Okay, not with linguistics, right? But with negotiation and looking at the peasants' demands and what has created this kind of rebellion which they're talking about, yeah? We're talking about slow changes which have already happened, right? slow changes which have taken a long time to happen with the wars and with the plagues and with the whole idea of the feudal system slowly transforming into another kind of pre-capitalist system or almost capitalist system where uh, instead of goods you have money changing hands, right? You have already the movement of people from one place to another, right? which is something that happens in a big way after industrialization and the industrial revolution is supposed to have started over here when you are printing, when you have the cities of Milan and Venice and all those kind of things, there's also already a political change that is taking place, right? We're actually talking about these subtle changes that take place over a long period of time, right? So you might not even notice it, right? Yeah, but but when, you're, when you actually look at it, this idea of a democratic movement, right? I'm not talking about a person like uh, Savarpalli Radhakrishnan and I was rather disappointed to read his on democracy because he's saying that democracy has always been uh, a part of Indian, the Indian constitution, right? uh, the Indian people, right? Yeah, from ancient times to, to today, right? And you begin to wonder, is this man in his right sense, right? Of course, he might be a scholar, which he was, He's a, uh, he's a great scholar, he was a lecturer in Oxford University, right? or he, he gained all these very, very important places, and he was Vice-Chancellor of BHU and other places, he was President of India also. right? So what is interesting is that he, he in his uh, On Democracy, is writing about democracy always being uh, there in India, right? which I don't, I don't believe, right? not at that time, less even today. right? Yeah, at that point of time, yes, we had some notions of democracy, but today we don't, right? Because we, we are taking orders without thinking, yeah? We are taking orders without discussions, right? We are, and this is how our universities operate. 
the bureaucracy operates, the whole country is operating in this manner, and it's leading to a lot of chaos and a lot of messes, right? So that's another story, right? But we are looking also at a time in Britain, right, where we're talking about negotiation, right? And of course, we also have to keep in mind at a much later stage, this man called Napoleon talks about the English as a nation of shopkeepers, right? Yeah, and that's important because uh, Napoleon talks about them in a derogatory manner because France has been the center of culture and you've had the idea of uh, the, the 1066 revolution, right? It's a little before this, right? A little before is uh, in a, lo a, a long time. Actually, it's about two, 300 years before the period that we're talking about, right? And uh, to, uh, for 200 years, English is not spoken and all those kinds of things we've talked about, right? But when Napoleon, so the French looked down on the English, right? They looked down on everybody because they're supposed to be the cat's whiskers at the highest kind of a point in culture, right? Yeah, so the only people they can stick uh, is the English because somewhere they think our French culture has dropped off from them, right? Yeah, but, uh, but, but what's important is uh, when you're talking about negotiating, Right? That's exactly uh, that's something that's built up by the king and the people. Right? And the idea of this is not something that comes from England, but it comes from Rome. Right? The whole idea of governing people properly. Right? The, the idea of the civitas. Right? And the idea of the king being a citizen among citizens, but at a, uh, the first citizen. Right? Yeah. So the idea is the king has to be a citizen, right? And that comes from Greek philosophy, right? We're talking about the philosopher king, right? And we're talking about the idea of civitas, that this the king has to be a citizen, which is somehow thought about today in our so-called democracies, right? Yeah, the citizen among citizens, and the, okay? And that's the, the person who rules the country, etc. The prime minister, the president, all these are citizens among citizens, and everybody is equal before the law, right? Now the king is the law, uh, not quite, but a little tempered because of the Battle of Ranimir and the the Magna Carta, which was uh, this document that the king signs with all the the lords and the barons of uh, England, right? Yeah. So that and the parliament is established. So the, the, the total power of the king is tempered, right? It's not destroyed, right? But uh, it's still the idea of Roman governance is still there, right? And Rome and Greece were supposed to be democracies and some kind of those ideas of democracy were still present when we're talking about the, the English world, right? They're not a democracy, it's definitely a monarchy, but they're talking about the idea, they have the idea of democracy Okay, and if the idea of democracy is there, right, in governance, at this point of time, it's because you've actually had a parliament, you have these old ideas which they've got from Greece and Rome, right, the Romans actually ruled them for some period of time, right, and the idea of the law and the idea of governance comes in as a Roman and Greek idea, right. So that's how the English also get uh, in tune with the mainland Europe, right. So I think. Uh, that might help us to understand how things are operating. Yeah. So when you're talking about a rebellion, it's the idea of the king as a civilian, civitas, right? 
how am I as a citizen, right? And as a citizen, if my citizens are suffering, then I am suffering, right? Yeah, because that is what is called the body politic, right? Okay, which is of course developed into a theory in the age of Elizabeth, which is about 200, 300 years after this, right? Yeah, and it's actually, when we're talking about that, you already have the idea over here, right? If one citizen suffers, right? That means you're actually insulting the king, right? If one person commits suicide, that means you're insulting the king, and not only the king of the earth, but they believe that God was the king of kings, right? Yeah, so that's the idea. Okay, so suicide is not only saying, okay, I commit suicide because I want to take revenge on my nation, right? That's the idea, right? That's what the farmers are doing, right? No faith in the people, no faith in anybody in India that's happening, right? Yeah, so committing suicide is again a huge crime against the state, right? And that's why if you die after, uh, with, when you commit suicide, well, you're free. But if you don't die for your attempt to commit suicide, that's a crime. Yeah, right? Of course. So that a case has to be registered against you for attempting to commit suicide, right? Of course, uh, there are all sorts of other provisions, but this is a, a law which has been there for a long time, right? Yeah, it's a crime against the state. It's a crime against the nation, right? Because the life of every citizen is actually as if if one toe of the the the, the state gets hurt, right? And you'll get this happening in Coriolanus by Shakespeare, right? Yeah, we are actually talking about the body politic, which goes back to Aesop's fables, right? And it's talking about which part of the body is important, right? So the idea is, from the king's point of view, he has to be a good king, right? He has to be the philosopher king. So that's what minimally would be understood, okay? How educated the king was, how educated the king was not, how managerially correct he was or not, that's a different story, right? But the idea is there that I have to be a good king, right? And I have to serve the people. That's already there, right? So this is an idea that is European, Roman, right? And I have to be a good person, right? A good human being, a good philosopher, and also see that the subjects don't suffer, right? So that's the idea over here. So when we're talking about the king riding out as a boy, and going and meeting the peasants, right? Of course it means courage, right? Because we've had revolutions, uh, and the question is, you have, you have the kings going up to the guillotine and standing over there and saying, okay, kill me, right? Yeah, and that's when democracy happens in France, right? Yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, uh, so that's a different story, right? But over here, going and meeting an angry mob Actually, whether it happened or not happened, I don't know, but that's the way history is written, right? Yeah, but it's a pat on the back of the king for one reason, because we're talking about learning rhetoric, learning to speak to angry people and calming them down, which this king is able to do, right? I am, I'll stop in about half a minute because I've got only a half a minute time to record, right? Yeah, so uh, this is something that you learn when you're talking about rhetoric. How do you handle an angry crowd, right? And the idea of a king, right, is very important over there, right? 
uh, in fact, there is a story from Nazi Germany, right? Uh, and it's written by a person called Albert Speer, who's called the devil's architect, because he's the one who designs 